0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories, where we love bringing you stories from all different kinds of communities across this great country. And today we bring you a story from a city that's been ranked as the most generous in America, Provo, Utah, where over 93% of its citizens are members of the Mormon Church, which may have just a little something to do with that generosity thing. Here's Provo native Stan Swim with his life story, beginning with his time in college.
1: Our local congregation leader asked me to run the Sunday night devotional and I remember standing up on the steps looking out over the street as everybody was gathering and Sunday evenings being what they are lots of people were coming in sweats or whatever and I remember watching a young lady walk up at the back who was very clearly still in her Sunday attire and uh, she just to hear her tell it. She says, I gave her the look. (laughs) And she knew she was in trouble. So when that whole devotional thing was over, she made a beeline back to her apartment trying to get away from this guy who looked like he might be interested. (laughs) And uh, I did. I followed her back across the street and I came to the door and I don't remember what I asked her to do. I asked her to do something and she said no. And I think she thought that that might be the end of it. But it turns out the apartment i moved into was the one just right on top of hers so there was no way for either of us to go anywhere without running into the other one pretty frequently and i asked her out a couple more times and both of those times she said no and i finally got a little bit uh i guess my pride got hurt or something i don't know but she was kind of standing with the door just partway cracked open when she was saying no on this third time and I said, you know, can I just can I step into your office for a minute? And I just sort of invited myself into the apartment and said, you know, I don't understand what the big deal here is. I didn't bring you any roses. I'm not, you know, all I want to do is go do something together. And I don't remember what else I said in the conversation, but the long and short was we still didn't go out after all that. A few weeks later, I hadn't gone out on a whole lot of dates or anything recently, and I was just realizing, you know what, I got to go... I need to do something. So I went up to the fine arts ticket office at BYU and I bought tickets to three or four things because I knew if I had the tickets that I would be motivated to get a date and go use it. And so I had those tickets in my back pocket and I walked back home. And as I was walking onto the stairwell, she came up and we kind of bumped into each other and this really awkward conversation ensued. She had been in a humanities class that day and she had an assignment to go to some number of cultural events, and one of them was to the operetta Mary Widow, to which I happened to have tickets in my pocket. <laughs> so our first date, after three times saying no, was going to see the Merry Widow on November 1st, 1997. And I remember thinking, I really got to play it cool on this thing because it's been really hard to get this girl to go out with me and I don't want to scare her off. So for some reason, that meant that it seemed like a good idea to me to just, I think I put on a blue shirt and a pair of khakis and, and I put on this really loud Tabasco Argyle tie, maybe just to try and convince myself I wasn't taking it too seriously. I went downstairs to pick her up and go on a date and she was wearing a black semi-formal and I stood there feeling like two cents waiting for change and uh, I thought, oh, this is, this is off to a really good start. So we went to dinner And went to this show, and I just remember the whole time sitting there and talking to her and thinking, I really like this, and I want to spend more time with her. And after that first date, it took a few weeks for us to kind of orbit each other and figure it out a little bit. But it was right in the middle of all this that I flunked out of college after having gotten in on a full scholarship. And uh, that takes a certain amount of doing. And I remember I had a couple of thoughts cross my mind. One of the first was, I don't know how I'm gonna tell my dad. And so he's not the first person I told. The first person I told was one of my roommates. And then I think the second person I told was Michelle. And I remember approaching that conversation knowing that I had to be honest with her and just feeling like I may have just screwed up because, Who'd want to marry this? Who'd want to marry a failure? And I did not have a game plan for what I was going to do next. I didn't know. I was kind of lost and I hadn't learned how to seek help from the right sources, yet spiritual or otherwise, I think in a lot of ways. And I just remember having that conversation with her and wondering kind of if that was it. And fortunately it wasn't to her and I'll always be grateful that she saw something in me at a time when I really, I saw failure and that was about it. And, uh, and I've been grateful that for 20 years now, she's stood with me through thick and thin and I wouldn't be anything close to what I've been able to become without the kind of trust and support that she's given me so freely marriage. It's not just a relationship between you and your spouse. It's a promise that each of you make before God to take care of each other and because of what I just said with how Michelle had treated me at a time when I was really down through my own choosing. It wasn't because somebody else had done anything to me. This was my choice and she still saw something in me through all of that. I remember kneeling at that altar having a sense that, boy, if I can't If I can't do the right thing for her, that's real failure. If I can't be the person that she somehow still thinks I am, then that's, that's failure. But if I can, if I can somehow have some small piece of the influence in her life that she's had in mind, then uh, that'd be a race well-run.
0: A race well-run indeed. We're listening to Stan Swim, his story, and my goodness, him talking about what happened 20 years ago, like it happened yesterday, folks. So many of these stories we get from ordinary Americans, the recollections, those turning points in our lives, we all have them. And his was learning that he had just flunked out of college, terrified to talk to his dad. And he talks to this girl, Michelle. As he said, I've been grateful she saw something in me I didn't, and we all have had that experience of driving ourselves into a ditch. And there are those people saying, I told you so, but there's always that other person. Again, that person who sees something in you, you don't. And when we come back, more with Stan Swim, his story, his bride, Michelle's story, and a touch of Provo, Utah's story, here on Our American Stories. stories, and we return now to Stan
1: Swim's story. It was about two years into our marriage that we realized we were having real trouble getting pregnant, and there just wasn't, nothing was happening. Each of us, we responded to that in quite different ways, and I think that was kind of our, (laughs) you know that you're different as husband and wife, but a test of that particular kind at least for us, really surfaced some of those differences. For Michelle, the idea that she wasn't gonna have the experience of being able to give life, that really was a blow to her, and you can understand why. It kind of struck at her concept of what a a mother was. A mother was a life giver, and if she couldn't give life, was she ever really gonna be a mother? And for me, it was different i didn't feel it in terms of a physical sense but i would watch other people and just see kind of the affection and the relationship that they would have with their kids and just it just started to really hurt and so we were in kind of this place where you're having an experience that's caused by the same thing infertility but to which your reactions are completely and totally different and in some ways catch you both by surprise. I didn't think that I would actually watch somebody change a diaper and get slightly jealous. You don't think that that's going to happen to you, but but I did feel that way. And for her, looking at, she had four sisters, all of whom were able to have kids. Her brother had been able to have kids, and here she was, the last of the family to get married, and now there was this question, was it going to work out for us? And that, it just made for some kind of vulnerable times and some times when we didn't necessarily know how to verbalize with each other what we were feeling. So you kind of went through it, but not always were we able to sort of share and and comfort each other in the, at least verbally, because we, it was still too kind of raw and fresh. At some point, as we prayed about it, we realized, you know what? We're going to do adoption and we're going to explore this. And then the waiting game starts. We waited for a year and a half or so before we moved to Texas where you're going to support groups and you're trying to get to know birth moms. And only once in a blue moon did we get a call that there might be anything out there. Most of the time there was just nothing, just radio silence, just nothing on the other end of the phone. And... Going on two and a half years, there was nothing. It still, it still hurt. It didn't feel like anything was coming. I had been working for a year as a temple worker at the temple in Dallas and would go there every Saturday morning. All of the workers there who would start the shift would have a prayer together before we went upstairs to begin helping patrons who'd come to the temple and in that room the men and the women would meet separately so I was in a room with a bunch of men every one of whom was at least twice my age I was the only person on the shift under the age of 60 maybe the only person under the age of 65 and when these men learned what my wife and I were hoping for and and, uh, and praying for that we'd have children um They never let a week go by. That prayer was mentioned as part of that prayer meeting when we started our shift. And so every Saturday morning for a year, um, a bunch of men in white suits just kind of wrapped their arms around me as a young husband who didn't really know what he was doing and uh, just got behind me. And, And in the most real way I can express, that was not just a life raft of faith, but a, a life raft of real human love and support. So that goes on for a year and still nothing. And uh, I've got an instant message from my wife. Remember when that was a thing? It wasn't texts yet, it was instant message. <laughs> I got a message and she said, we need to talk. And I said, okay, sh- you know, sure, go ahead. And she said, no, where are you? So I told her and she came down and she told me, um, our caseworker called, and we have four hours to make a decision. There's a little boy who's been born up in Utah, and he's two weeks old, and his birth mom would like us to adopt him. We have four hours to make our decision, and if we say yes, we need to get on a plane tonight, and we'll pick him up tomorrow. And uh, we sat there in the in the La Madeline, we sat there back in a corner, and just kind of cried and prayed over our lunch. What are we going to do? And you'd think at a certain level that you'd be excited, like, oh, my gosh, it's finally here, and you, you just want to race out the door. But I think we were also in kind of a, a spot where our faith was maybe just a little weak, and we just weren't sure that this was going to work. And if it wasn't, could we actually, how would we recover? After we thought about it and worked on it for a little bit, we drove back to our apartment, pulled stuff together, called back the agency and said, we're coming and we want to do this. And then we got out the door and then drove to DFW Airport in rush hour traffic. We made it in about 30 minutes and that shouldn't have been possible at that time of night got there with one minute to spare to get our bags on the plane, boarded the plane. We were the last two people on the plane. Drove out to this church building. And uh, as we walked into that room, there was a young woman sitting there in a black dress and a, a red top. And you could tell she'd been crying for a long time because she had stripes of tears all the way down the front of her sweater. She was holding a little boy in a blue blanket had her mom and dad sitting behind her. And uh, I don't remember very many specifics, but I do remember a couple of things. As the, the conversation, if you can call it that, kind of progressed, the girl finally collected herself. She hadn't looked at us really the whole night. She finally looked up and she she looked at her dad and she said, I, I don't know if I can do this, can you help me? And so her dad lifted her baby out of her arms and placed him into my wife's arms. She looked at me and she said, I want you to know that I'm doing this because I want my son to have a dad. And I'd just seen how her dad felt about her. And you could tell they were really, really close. And the more I've reflected on that moment, the more I've realized how much she understood that I didn't. And there's a handful of things that I could list. One of them was just even taking my responsibility as a father seriously. But she also realized something else that I think is lost a lot today. And that is, it was not about her. And it wasn't about me, and it wasn't about Michelle. It was about that little boy and what was right for him. And for a 19-year-old to have that figured out, when I, as a 29-year-old, was still probably too focused on myself, was as humbling an experience as I think I've ever had. I hope, I hope that I live up to what she intended. I know for sure I haven't done it perfectly. Then I remember driving out of town and Michelle and I not really knowing what to say to each other as we drove up the highway and I could hear Sam sleeping in the back seat. It just sounded like this quiet little choo-choo train and uh, realizing in a few minutes, sometime soon, he's going to wake up. Then what?
0: and what a story and for anybody who has gone through the adoption process we want to hear your stories if you've adopted if you've been adopted it's National Adoption Month and my goodness what an act of generosity that is what an act of service what an act of love just completely loving a stranger and my goodness what a lesson that mom was teaching him what a lesson Stan and Michelle were learning she understood it was not about her or me or my wife It was about that little boy. And as Stan said, it was about as humbling an experience as I ever had. And I only hope to live up to what she intended. And when we come back, we're going to find out if Stan and Michelle did live up to what that mom, that beautiful mom, that sacrificial mom. My goodness, you want to talk about sacrificial love. This is it, folks. What a beautiful story. More from Stan Swim. And it's his wife's story, too. And my goodness, it should be all of our stories. What a thing any of us can do in our lives for a complete stranger. This is Our American Story. continue with the story of Stan swim and we're celebrating National Adoption Month all month long. When we last left off, Stan and his wife Michelle had just adopted their first son Sam, who was in the back seat snoring like a little train.
1: We didn't feel like our family was complete yet. Sam was about two and a half when we decided to start the papers again. In the meantime, my father passed away, and in order to take care of his affairs, we ended up moving back home to Utah. We looked at, I think, almost 80 homes, and just couldn't feel good about any of them until we finally found one. It wasn't where we thought we wanted to live, but we went ahead and moved in. And we hadn't been there very long when we realized that uh, surrounding us were four other families who had all had adoptive experience, had adopted children that were living in the home right then or in one case had been affected by adoption earlier in their lives. And there was just a really special camaraderie that developed between us as families and especially amongst us as parents. And that manifested itself in a couple of ways. As you would go through the adoptive journey, there were a few highs and a bunch of lows. Where you just get discouraged and you wonder what's gonna happen. And having neighbors who've truly had been there and just understood all of these things, it just made all kinds of difference. About late 2007, it started to hurt again. By that point, we'd been waiting for two years We'd had a few phone calls with different birth parents, including one. It would have been Christmas of 2007, Christmas Day, we got a phone call from a birth mom who was considering placing with us. I mean, Christmas got seriously set aside. We, We just stopped everything. We just had this great call, and then there was a moment where she asked us what faith we were. And when we explained it, that for her was the end of the discussion not necessarily because she wanted it to be but because she felt like her mom wouldn't accept her decision if she placed her baby with us and uh, you know that that didn't feel very good um but i also had had enough time to think about what our first son's birth mom had said and what i had seen from her to realize that you know what God guides these decisions, and even if that's not a very fun thing, I need to be okay with it. As I keep looking at it now, I just realize, you know, in those moments, what birth parents do, and birth moms in particular, what they do is an act of self-sacrifice that I don't think you can understand unless you, you take a bullet for somebody. I'm not sure that there's another equivalent that comes close. I haven't seen one. And I think when we think as a society about what we would want for people in that situation, I I think they have to be able to make their decision on the things that they value and care about the most. And if that means that they don't feel like their child should go to a particular couple, us in this case, then we need to be okay with that because no one is going to put more thought and effort and more love into that decision than a birth mom. I've just seen it too many times, not just with our own kids, but with other birth moms as well. And so that was kind of a bummer Christmas. And so that sort of started a period of time for these next few months where we, we were getting really discouraged again. So, the night before our 10th anniversary, it was a Sunday night, Michelle and I were saying our prayers before we went to sleep, and the two of us were just at a place where we just said, Lord, do we have to keep doing this? Um, We don't know if we can do it anymore. And we really I think we were too tired to wait for an answer we didn't that was just kind of the impression we went to bed on we're just too tired we just want to be done with putting ourselves out like this and constantly having to hold room open in your life when for something that may never happen it was kind of like when we were waiting for Sam first in Texas we had a room in our apartment that had a crib in it and there, there was a point at which you thought, you know, are we just, are we playing house? What is this? Because it, it it never felt like it was going to happen. Well, it was there again. We went to bed, and the next morning I had to get up really early for some work things, so I left the house. Later, whenever it was that Sam and Michelle woke up, and Michelle was st- still pretty emotional, and Sam came up to her, and he said, uh, Mom, we're going to get a baby brother. And he'd been... Talking about a baby brother for years, he would play with his imaginary baby brother. So at first, Michelle kind of wanted to dismiss it a little bit, but he got pretty insistent. He said, "No, we're, I'm going to get a baby brother." I got out of a long meeting and my wife called me immediately, and she said, "You got to get home because we've got a phone call with the birth mom. She wants to talk to us tonight." So I remember you know, driving home quickly and. We had a call with a young woman from Round Rock, Texas. It was a really, she was just this amazingly relaxed and kind of open and sort of easy come, easy go. Obviously taking it seriously, but just as a person, she just seemed so self-assured in a moment like this. It was just kind of a, it was so different from our feelings that we've experienced in our first adoption. It was kind of hard to know exactly what to think and we hung up the phone and thought well gosh I wonder how that went she didn't tell us what she thought or what she was going to do and so we went to bed and the next morning I got a call from the agency and they said well you know how do you think it went and I just laughed I said Melissa I don't have any idea I have no idea how that call went and she said well it must have gone okay because she chose your family and we need you to get here by Thursday and uh we said, okay, good, we'll get on it. She called back later that afternoon, and she <laughs> was checking up on our plans, and she said, you guys don't sound like you're in that much of a hurry. I mean, are you actually excited about this? And I said, Melissa, last time we did this, we had four hours. We, we packed our stuff so fast. That when we got back to our apartment, it looked like a tornado had gone through there, and we're pretty orderly people. So I said, you just, you just told me I have two days instead of four hours. I got all kinds of time. Time is really relative. And so we flew down to Texas on the 3rd of July. We met Ann that night, went to do pizza and stuff with her and her three-year-old son. And the next day was the 4th of July and we did some fireworks and stuff together. And it was hot, it was Texas in the summer, of course it's hot. And then the next day did a few more things. About three o'clock in the morning, she called and she said, I'm on my way to the hospital can you get there? and She had asked my wife to come be there for the delivery, which meant a lot to Michelle, because again, that was part of the experience that she grieved not being able to have children. And so Anna invited her into the delivery room for that. Sam and I got up and drove her to the hospital. (laughs) Then the two of us, just being guys, I guess, drove back to the hotel and went back to sleep Got a phone call just before 7 o'clock in the morning on July 6th that uh, our son had been born. That was my birthday. And so that's the best birthday present I've ever gotten and probably ever will get.
0: And what a birthday present indeed. And I just want to read something. It's a note I jotted down while listening to Stan talking about what birth moms do. What birth moms do is an act of self-sacrifice, unlike anything except possibly taking a bullet for somebody. It's that deep. Well, that this mom allowed Michelle to come into that delivery room while the guys went back to the hotel like guys do, Stan and Sam, and Michelle was in there with that mom, having as close an experience as she could to childbirth, and what a beautiful thing that mom did for Michelle, for this family for the baby, and for the world. National Adoption Month all month long. Stan Swim's story here on Our American Stories. to the final portion of Stan Swim's remarkable adoption stories. And when we left off, he and his wife, Michelle, had just adopted their second son, Michael, out of state in Texas. And they're returning to what's perhaps the most incredible cul-de-sac in America, where five of its eight families have had experience with adoption.
1: After being gone two weeks, we got ready to come home and I guess to the outside observer, you might expect a person to just be sort of giddy and celebratory as you're headed home, but we really weren't. We never were. You're always a little tired because you've been living out of a suitcase for that period of time. But more to the point, you've just received a child because someone else made a sacrificial decision. And so your joy and their grief are two sides of the same coin, and you feel that, both of those things. The emotions aren't really contradictory in this case, because they come from the very same thing. And you're not ready for kind of the what most people might think of as a baby party. Well, when we got back to our house, everything looked totally normal on the outside of our house, but as we opened the back door from the garage and came into the house, our neighbors um, had filled the house with balloons and cards and gifts, and it was all, it wasn't a sort of celebration in the giddy sense. It was a sharing of that experience and them just understanding kind of right where that would hit us. There were some really sweet notes that they had written for my son, our oldest son, Sam, and There was some food that they left in the fridge. And you just knew in that moment how blessed we were to live in the middle of one little cul-de-sac that was just full of this kind of experience. And uh, you realize that you just, I I don't think we ever realize how fortunate we are to encounter the people that we do. And if if we could all look for the good that we're meant to do in each other's lives, uh, this this world would be a much better place. There was a period in time where adopted kids were the majority in this little cul-de-sac, and there were some kids that were Pacific Islanders, and there were kids that had Latino backgrounds, and our kids, which were kind of a mix of things, and it just, uh, it was this little adoption mecca, and it made it, it just, it, it made the experience for us. We were trying to learn a lot of things, and being surrounded by these great families was just an incalculable blessing for us. As soon as Michael came along, Sam took one look at him, and and he didn't even miss a beat. He said, well, now that I've got a little brother, I want a little sister, too, just like you can go to Walmart and pick these things out. You can imagine shopping for him for Christmas. It took us a while before we were quite ready to go through that again, so eventually we did put papers together and started the adoption journey again, ended up for a little while, thinking that we were gonna adopt a baby from Arizona, and that ended up not working out. That was really hard on the boys, missing the little girl that we thought was gonna come to our family. Things kinda kept going, but it was another year and a half before anything else popped up, and it was July of 2012, and Michelle and I were back to the same place that we'd been four years before that, where we just said, we're tired. Lord, do we really have to keep doing this? And we had chosen to spend some time that day in the temple, and that's where we were praying, and both of us had essentially the same impression, which is, you need to get home, and you need to check your email now. So we did that and what was waiting in my email box was one of those emails that looks like some kind of Nigerian spam that's been forwarded more times than you can count. Stuff has been indented all the way across. Things were just a complete hash. It took a while to figure out what the email even said. But it was a chain of correspondence between attorneys all over the country who were responding to a lawyer in Louisiana trying to find a family for a little girl. Something in me just clicked. It's like, I got to respond to this. I don't know if this is her, but in spite of the fact that it looks like this crazy piece of spam, I'm going to pick up the phone. That was the start of our third adoption. And when we got the call to go down for the delivery, we took our boys with us. We wanted them to be part of this experience too. So we ended up living in a motel room in Louisiana for about three weeks. And again, The birth mom invited my wife to come into the delivery room with her which it's just i've never had that experience but i can all i know is from watching michelle's response that it was a profoundly special and sacred thing Um, and our little daughter susanna was born and i'll never forget watching sam the first time he got to hold his little sister he was sitting in the window In the hospital and this was a little girl that we'd been praying for for years and he kind of cradled her in his arms and he started to look uncomfortable and then all of a sudden he just started to sob he just kind of was overwhelmed as a nine-year-old boy with all of this finally happening among the things that he had said was going to happen he said well i want this little girl to be born on my birthday Lord got awfully close. Uh, Their birthdays are a week apart, and because of how adoption laws work, their adoption days turned out to be exactly the same, nine years apart. Just lots of little things like that that would happen over and over again. And maybe that looks like coincidence to a lot of other people. It doesn't look or feel that way to us. There were just too many of them. When Susanna was born, she was terrified of loud voices, But not just any loud voices, it was male loud voices. And her birth mom had been in some kind of a fight, or maybe worse, with her birth father when she went to tell him that she was pregnant, three months pregnant at that point. For the first, I would say, probably year after she was born, if I raised my voice... Not even in anger, but if I raised my voice, she would just dissolve in tears. She just couldn't handle it. I came away with two things. One, I learned I raised my voice too often. And the other one was I learned that she was a witness to something. And you can't tell me that a first trimester pregnancy isn't still a person because of what we saw. She didn't, she had no contact with the birth father after that adoption as an institution is really in decline. And in an age when we're properly questioning a lot of entitlements, I think there's one entitlement we shouldn't question, and that's every child's right to a mom and a dad. That's what nature would have given them, and too often it's something we don't give them. I understand that there can be all sorts of life circumstances that can make that tough and I don't want to be misunderstood as trivializing any of that. All those experiences are very real and and I don't want to judge an individual situation, but I want to speak broadly and just say to all of us as adults, life just isn't, it's not about us. It just isn't. Our families are not about us. This country really isn't about us. The very founding of the nation we live in has embedded in the preamble of our constitution a generational idea that we want to secure blessings not just for ourselves, but for our posterity. And to do that requires us committing to and living in a way that is not just consuming everything for ourselves in the here and now. We have to be willing to sacrifice and instead of, I'll say, mortgage somebody else's future so we can have a benefit today, flip it. The opposite of a mortgage is a heritage. It's the gift that survives us even in death because we made the effort to pay for it here and now, not because we would get any benefit from it, but because those who follow us would get that adoption has become too rare, and that doesn't mean that the situations that used to lead to adoption have become correspondingly rare. They haven't. They've become more common, and I hope that people who are hearing this who might have given it a passing thought at some point will take it more seriously, will look somewhere within their reach. It might not be very far, it might be a long ways away, but look for an opportunity to make that kind of difference in someone's life. For me, adoption has been a maybe irreplaceable part of my faith journey. And I'm really grateful for what the Lord has allowed me to learn and for the way that he has stood beside me, my wife and my children as we've been through this journey. And we've got a ways to go yet, but um, if we can, if we can stay on his path, I, I hope we'll live our lives in a way that's pleasing to him.
0: And you were hearing from Stan Swim of Provo, Utah, his wife, Michelle, Sam, and Michael, and of course, the little girl that they'd been praying for, Suzanne. And what a story, folks, and we're celebrating adoption all month long. It's National Adoption Month. Send us your stories. If you've been adopted, we'd love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. And if you've adopted, we'd love to hear from you. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And we'll produce them and put them right back up on the air. Stan Swim and his family, a story of love and generosity and sacrificial love on those birth moms' part. All of those stories here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from history to business, and your stories, too. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And one of our favorite topics here on Our American Stories is the story of a song. And today, we're going to tell you the story of how we've listened to our favorite songs and how these songs have shaped and defined our lives. Here's Greg Hengler. In
2: 1877, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, the first record player. Almost two decades later, in 1896, radio was invented. We've come a long way from the phonograph to today's MP3. How we got here is the story we are about to tell. Let's begin with the godfather of hip hop culture, Africa Mbamba, music writer Chuck Granada. Recording engineer Rudy Van Gelder and Elton John.
3: Way back before my time they had the turntable that used to have to crank up. Then it has this big fat needle with a little pin on it. And they used to get on the record. You might hear the crack of pops popping in it. And they used to hear the song coming through a horn.
4: might not have no bass, but you had a lot of trouble, but you still was learning to dance with it. Those old 78 RPM records, the grooves were cut into
5: shellac and were very noisy. Those 78s, the playing time was three minutes each side.
3: The 78 was, you know, big and, and it broke.
2: Here's Chuck Granada and Stephen Van Zandt.
4: In the 1940s, Two major rivals had been experimenting with a way to create a quieter record with a longer playing time. There was Columbia, headed by William Paley, and RCA Victor, which was headed by David Sarnoff.
3: Sarnoff had RCA, and they had everything. Okay, they had radio, they invented the record player, they invented the record, the record being the 10-inch shellac 78. So, in 1948, Sarnoff going along merrily, owning the world, and this upstart Paley, ten years younger, invites him to the CBS office and says, "Listen, David, we want you to hear our new product." And he plays him the first 33
5: album, a new kind of record. LP is played for 25
1: instead of four minutes without interruption,
5: as though it were
4: a top secret mission. Paley had his engineers create a long-playing vinyl record before RCA had the chance to come out with their version. So that really aggravated Sarnoff.
3: So Sarnoff leaves there and calls his entire office into the room and says, you know, you have exactly five minutes to explain to me how this punk beat me to the punch with something new. And they go through all their files looking for some way to combat this. And they go all the way back... to their very first record, it happened to be a seven-inch disc, and they create this the seven-inch forty-five.
6: On the new distortion-free RCA Victor forty-five rpm records.
2: Come on to my house, I'm
6: gonna give you apple, plum, and do.
7: Come
4: on. What are teenagers listening to on the radio? They're listening to one song, two songs that are the most popular. So let's come out with a disc that has two songs on it, and we'll sell it for 50 cents. And along with the kids' records, the kids' record player, which
3: he takes into his room by himself to play his records, and a whole new thing is born called teenage rock and roll.
2: Here's Paul Inka, Jeff Beck, and Roger Daltrey.
5: Music was everywhere, and it was always the social event based around that funny little
8: machine. To hear Eddie Cochran, Twenty Flight Rock—that was it. And this thing used to whir around and almost rat- rattle itself off the table because it's spinning so fast.
9: The rock single was the thing that really made us all want to be rock singers or guitarists or in a band, and it was the noise of it.
2: Here's George Martin What amazed me was the
9: sheer technical ferocity of the stuff Volume I could actually see the loudness of the record in the groove The louder you could make a pop record, the better it was likely to sell
8: Rock and roll was considered bad for the youth of America by a lot of people mostly adults.
7: Daddy, daddy, daddy I
2: don't Here's record producer Lamont Dozer.
10: Music was segregated during the 50s. People used to call black music brace music. And a lot of the people used to think that it was a little too suggestive.
7: When you throw me like you throw me with a touch that always fills me with love so fine. <sighs>
10: Forty-five records, I think, did a lot for bringing the races together. I think it was the beginning of the end for that old race music.
2: Here's songwriting team Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber.
6: Jerry and I were young white kids, even though we liked to think of ourselves as black, who loved black music. And those were the artists that we wanted to write for. I first met Big
9: Mama Thornton in Johnny Otis' rehearsal space. She was quite
6: intimidating. She had a few scars on her face, looked like razor scars, but she could sing. The AR men, Johnny Otis, called and said, I'm doing a session with her and I need songs, so you better come on down. She was wearing old farmer jeans. She looked like she didn't have much use for guys like us. Her actual physical being inspired Jerry. I think it probably took us about 10 minutes to write Hound Off. I said, you know what,
9: man, I'm not happy with this song. I said, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. It's It's not enough kick. I want something really dirty, like Dirty Mother Furrier, don't you know?
6: And I said, no, they won't play that on the radio. I really want something that's
9: really kick. Hound dog, I mean, give me a break.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of sound, the story of records, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're listening to Big Mama Thornton's Everything Gonna Be Alright. And now let's return to Greg Hengler and the 60 years of songwriting team Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller as they continue to tell the story of how they wrote a song called Hound Dog for Big Mama in 1952. This prolific songwriting team wrote some of the most enduring classics in the history of rock and roll. Yakety Yak, Stand By Me, There Goes My Baby, and On Broadway.
6: Here's Stoller and Lieber. We attempted to interest her in the song. She snatched the paper out of my hand. She said, what's this?
9: I said, that's the song. He said, this is a song? I said, yeah. You ain't nothing but a hound dog
6: I remember Jerry saying it, it doesn't go like that big mama She said white boy
9: don't tell me how to sing the blues
2: You ain't nothing but a hound.
10: And we knew we had a hit
2: Here's Elton John.
3: My mum came home with a record. She said, I've just heard this record, and it's the sort of music I've never heard before. She said, but it's fantastic. And she said, listen to it. It was a total introduction to a different sort of music, obviously, which I found out later to have its roots in blues and rockabilly and folk and country uh, and gospel. Um, but, you know, Elvis Presley
5: you know, was
6: the one.
2: Here's record producer Lamont Dozer. Thanks to Elvis,
10: we were able to combine a mixture of what they thought whites felt and what blacks felt. Elvis brought a style of his own, of wiggling his behind and what have you and singing this same song by Big Mama Thornton, and all of a sudden, it became acceptable.
9: When I heard Elvis's rendition of Hound Dog, I thought it was kind of rockabilly, didn't have any blood in it.
6: But after it sold seven million records, it started to uh, sound better.
2: Here's Chuck Granada.
4: Big Mama Thornton's recording of Hound Dog in 1953 did very well. It was a 78 RPM that sold between half a million and a million copies. When Elvis's came out on a 45 RPM record in 1956, it sold 10 million copies. And that was a turning point for the 45. Meanwhile, other artists are beginning to make inroads with the 33 and a third LP.
6: In the wee small hours of the morning,
4: while the whole wide world is fast asleep, By 1954, Frank Sinatra is at the top of his game, the sweet spot for his voice and his work. At the same time, he's got this deep emotional upheaval because he's really carrying a torch for Ava Gardner, to whom he's still married, but not with. He's already broken up with her. And when he walked into the Capitol studio to record in the wee small hours. He understood that he could use this new format, the LP, for long form expression.
6: You ain't been blue,
2: no, no. Here's music writer Jody Rosen. Before the Long playing
4: record, we had a three minute long song. Now we could have a long form musical story. And so Sinatra created this crazy thing called the concept record. Frank sat with little pieces of paper with each song title on it, and he would shuffle them around so that they told a story. Sixteen songs, single statement. What it's like to lose your love. Frank always wanted Ava back. And what we hear in In the We Small Hours is a reflection of that anguish that he had lost this great love of his life.
6: Always get that mood Indigo Since my baby said goodbye In the evening.
8: When the lights are low I'm so lonely I could cry This
4: landmark album coincided with true high fidelity sound. The LP, magnetic tape, and these gorgeous Neumann microphones that gave you the most incredible richness. In creating this Concept album, Sinatra solidified a format for all of music to follow.
5: Here's Paul Anka. Number four, Love Potion number nine. Well, in the 50s, in the early 60s, the single record was the thing. If you didn't have that, you didn't get the album, which was a follow-through, and then you didn't have a career.
2: Here's Tommy from Tommy James and the Shondells.
5: And radio was the way you put new records in front of the public. So I loved AM radio. Be happy. Come on, everybody. It's a beautiful night in Chicago. These 50,000-watt clear channel stations, I mean, WLS in Chicago would hit 10 to 20 million people.
8: Hi, everybody all over America. This is your cousin, Brucey. It's the WABC Party. Go, go. Woo!
5: They'd hit 38 states at night. There is nothing more exciting thing on this earth than an exploding smash hit single, because it just it happens everywhere at once and it just goes. It's like an atomic bomb. So you knew going in the studio that everything you had to say had to be no longer than two minutes and 30 seconds or shorter if you wanted to get on the radio
2: here's the band's robbie robertson
5: this is like 1965 we were zooming around manhattan and john hammond jr said listen a friend of mine is recording and i said i would stop in and say hello and hear a little bit of what he's doing so we went to columbia recording studios And Bob Dylan and these musicians were in there recording. And they were recording like a rolling stone.
6: Once upon a time, you are so fine. Do the books of time in your prime. Then you. People call, say, beware, doll. You're bound fall. You thought they were all. kidding you.
5: And I didn't know but I thought... This song is really interesting. It was like a different kind of songwriting. Dion, Dion and the Belmonts was there.
10: Here's Dion. It was great to watch. Dylan had recorded some albums with just his guitar. And now he had a few of the guys uh, from the Brill building come up and play with, you know, drums, a full band behind him. It was exciting, but like he was like, like somebody let him out of a cage or something. <laughs> he knew what he was about and exactly what he wanted to do. You couldn't sway him because I heard some musicians say, "Listen, you can't do." He said, "Follow me."
2: Here's record producer Don Woods.
10: Like a Rolling Stone, in my opinion, is the greatest single anyone's ever made. It's a really ambitious statement. Put in a rock and roll of 45, just a couple years past, like be my baby.
6: And Napoleon in regs, and the language that he used. Go to him now, he calls you, you can't refuse. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing
9: to
10: lose.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable story in essence of American music. By the way, the innovation on the technical side, prompting innovation on the musical side, and an explosion occurs, a convergence of every form of music in America. More of this remarkable story of the American musical story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with this remarkable story about American music, basically, and how the 33, the 45, and the 78 were competing and created very different formats. And now let's continue with Greg Hengler and more of this story. Records, cassettes,
2: CDs, and MP3s. These are not just vehicles for music. They are reflections of ourselves in the time we live in. As technology has evolved, each generation has had a format to call its own. This is the story of our on-again, off-again love affair with musical formats and how magical pieces of wax, plastic, and silicone changed our world. Let's return to our story and pick up where we left off with Bob Dylan's masterpiece, Like a Rolling Stone.
8: Columbia had really become an album company. Bob makes what is perhaps the longest single ever made,
1: six minutes long.
8: Like a Rolling Stone, all of a sudden, it becomes a hit single.
6: Now Bobby Dylan comes front and center at WHK with song number six on the survey. This is called Like a Rolling Stone. You're going to hear the whole six-minute version here.
10: I think that the impact on radio was huge. You know, that maybe we can offer more. Uh, this is KSAN in San Francisco.
2: Here's Steven Van Zandt. Around 69,
3: yeah. FM radio started, which meant, you know, the DJs were s- slowed down now. And that's the way it was, and that's the way it is, and it's always changing, and it is always the same. And they were talking more conversationally, and it was all sort of being taken much more seriously.
5: Here's Tommy James. We went out uh, with Hubert Humphrey in 1968 on the presidential campaign. He was, of course, running for president. He was the vice president. Well, when we went out on the campaign, uh, the big acts of the day were the Rascals, the Association, the Buckinghams, Gary Puckett, us, you know, uh, all singles acts. 90 days later, when we get back, no kidding. The hottest acts are Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all album acts. We knew that if we were going to stay in this business, we had to sell albums. Led
3: Zeppelin, I believe, was the first one to tell the record company they were not permitted to put out a hit single anymore
10: because they were just so uncool.
2: Here's Dion. All of a sudden,
10: the 50s, people are on album covers, they're all smiling. The 60s hit, you don't smile on album covers anymore. Kennedy was assassinated. Rock and roll went down about five octaves. It
8: got serious.
2: Here's music writer Greg Milner.
8: During the 70s, especially in the rock world, the LP was king. But it had drawbacks. They can scratch. They're certainly not portable. And there was no way to make one easily. You had to go into a recording studio. You couldn't just make uh, an LP at home.
5: music in pocket size
8: and instant loading the cassette tape was a good example of a technology that really didn't even pretend to be in advance over what came before in terms of sound quality it was however very very portable you record from your radio Or make your own programs. And the first time anybody could make a recording. It's very easy to make like a direct, you know, from vinyl to tape recording. Here's
2: music producer Nigel Godrich, Adam Horowitz, and Dave Grohl.
8: I just taped all my friends. You know, I just had thousands of cassettes. You know, I was pirating
5: as a child, you know, absolutely. Think about when you're a kid and you're going to school and your pockets are like this and it's like
8: all tapes. We would make cassettes and share them with friends. And we would pass them around and then we'd go see those bands when they came into town and we felt like that music was ours of course you could also make mixtapes so essentially you could create your own LPs you had your cassette for a dollar and you'd put all your favorite songs on it you could find connections between songs you could find thematic things if I was making a tape for you, I'd be like, you know
5: what? I have a feeling you're going to like these particular types of songs. You'd maybe put some romantic things on there. You'd try to be cool with it. This is how I feel, you know, about you.
8: This particular selection of songs in this particular order, it was a big deal.
3: It's an extent of your arm. It's the extent of your personality. If there's a girl that you're really into, first thing I do is I go make her a mixtape
8: was a document for who you were at that moment, who you, how you wanted the rest of the world to see you through the prism of the music that you loved.
2: Here's Nina Cherry.
7: I remember getting a mixtape from Corona Queens. It was Spoonie G. It was just like a cassette from like a bodega. And I think I probably killed it. You know, I played it to death. It was like the first real uncommercial hip-hop sounding like it was coming off the street. And I fell in love with it. Here's Dave Grohl.
8: The first music scene that I fell in love with was the punk rock scene. My cousin Tracy, she brought me upstairs and she showed me a record collection. And she had fanzines. And you go to the back of one of those fanzines and there'd be this classified ad section where... Hey, I have a band, here's my demo tape, it's only two fifty. dollars Send two stamps and I'll send you a sticker and my cassette. And I realized there was this whole underground network, like, whoa, man. All of this is happening without anybody having any idea it's going on.
11: The cassette industry is booming. For the first time ever, pre-recorded cassettes are beginning to rival sales of the vinyl disc.
4: The thing that really drove cassette sales was the advent a handheld cassette player that you could listen to with headphones. The Sony
0: Walkman is a tiny
5: stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound.
2: Here's recording engineer Bob Ludwig and music writer Jason King.
0: They came up with a really good set of headphones for these little Walkmans, and for the first time, you could take a device this big with a, with a, a good set of headphones. And climb the top of Mount Everest, and you could listen to a Mahler Symphony and get chills down your spine. The Sony
3: Walkman has forever changed the way the world listens to music. That was an exciting new technology because basically it inaugurated the era of private listening. It was about walking in the street with your headphones on and the music
4: being contained to your personal space. The idea that
8: being able to have your own soundtrack wherever you went. That's what really, I think, changed the game. You could actually take them with you on the bus. You had the sound right there in your head. By 1983, the labels had records and they had cassettes. They didn't see anything really new on the horizon.
0: And when we come back, we continue with the story of the American music business, the innovations, the cultural ones, the musical ones, and, of course, the technical ones. We continue this story here on Our American Stories. continue with this final segment of this remarkable music story let's return to greg Hengler and the conclusion by 1983 there
2: were records and cassettes no one saw a new format on the horizon here's music reporter steve knopper music executive phil Quarteraro, and recording engineer elliot shiner oh! a disc,
5: a digital
2: audio disc, a gizmo so revolutionary that backers hope it will make records and tapes obsolete.
4: The CD sounded really, really good, but the record industry has always been deeply suspicious of new technology. Industry executives said, you know, no and way, basically. We will never get the compact disc. And the reason was because they were so worried about piracy. When you copied a CD to a cassette tape, that was a pristine copy. But the CD was cool at the time. It sounds so quaint now, but it was, it was shiny, and if you tilted it a certain way, it looked like a rainbow. It didn't scratch, and you could play it potentially in your car. And so the consumers really liked this thing. And towards the end of the 80s,
3: people started to rebuy their music they already owned on vinyl. They started
5: to repurchase the same collection on CD. $18, 19 $20 for a CD that was really worth no more, or maybe even less, than the LP.
2: Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine and Don Was. You got a record
6: deal, you got one song, you put 17 other songs on because they fit, and you, the people bought albums for $18 that had one song on it. When we look at the
10: decline in the popularity of the album and of sales... I think that was just way worse than some college students downloading songs for free, you know? It's like making records.
2: (laughs) Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley, DJ Greg Gillis, and Warner Brothers CEO Cameron Strang.
8: With the click of a mouse, Napster allows fans to download virtually any song completely free. In 1999, some college students created a file-sharing program called Napster,
7: All of a sudden, people are like, wait a minute, I don't have to drive to a record store, pay $20 to buy a CD that just has two songs on it that I like, I can sit at home and download countless albums for nothing.
5: And it just was like, you just discovered this golden You know, it just, all of a sudden, all of the music you want, it's right there in front of you and it's very easy to download. When they put music up for file sharing, 40 some odd million people came. you know, there were other companies, like, giving away money on the Internet, and you couldn't get 40 million
8: people to come. So the power of music was the first thing that struck me. I was like, wow. The court struck down Napster after two years. But by then, there were all these services all over the Internet, and they all used the same new format, the MP3. Here's Suzanne Vega.
11: I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner, I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee, and he fills it only halfway, and before I even argue, he is looking out the window at somebody coming in. I was taking my daughter to school, and one of the parents that I didn't know turned to me and said congratulations on being the mother of the mp3 to the woman who has come in she is shaking her umbrella. So I went home and and looked it up and sure enough it had this story about how this engineer called Karl Heinz Brandenburg had used the original unremixed version of Tom's Diner to test this thing he was working on called the mp3.
7: My research was how to compress music in a way that it would fit through a phone line and I already thought I'm pretty much done, everything works well.
11: Someone was playing Tom's Diner down the hall.
7: Susan Vega's voice sounds like she is standing in a room, and it's very clear and clean voice. And I said, okay, I want to try to see what our algorithms do with it.
11: I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man Unfortunately,
7: Susan Vega's voice was destroyed. It took us a couple of years until we really could do her voice perfectly clean.
11: I had no idea what would come next, and I met Karl-Heinz Brandenburg. And they were talking about this great new thing that was just going to be the coolest. You could play music on your phone, on your cell phone. And I remember thinking, that's kind of, who cares? Like, I don't need to play music on my phone. I just did not see what the MP3, what the future was going to be. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. <laughs>
7: Early 2000s, a really tumultuous period because a format change. Digital technologies recalibrate almost everything about how we consume music. It's
11: always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter.
7: You plug it into your computer and download your favorite songs. iTunes comes along and is selling songs for 99 cents. The music industry is just reeling selling digital music player in the nation revolutionizing the way Americans of all ages listen to music mp3s unravel what we know about people wanting albums and so interestingly enough we're back to a singles driven culture we take it for granted now but then it was a really remarkable concept that I could walk around with 10,000 songs in my pocket But then, with the era of YouTube, one of the main pieces of content that people want to upload is music. They want to upload their favorite song, they want to upload this video that they made to their favorite song, and YouTube still, I believe, is the number one music streaming service in the world.
4: Justin Bieber's songs have been listened to, some of them have been listened to 400 million times on YouTube. We listen to music on our earbuds, over our telephones through computers
5: when i'm listening they'll have full albums on youtube people just upload them and sometimes they'll just go to the next video oddly enough youtube is kind of like a new radio
7: cds are just disappearing you
5: know cds
4: are dead today we have a format which is almost an invisible format
0: there's amazing amount of you know these streaming services my
8: preferred method of listening to music is spotify SoundCloud,
7: iHeartRadio.
8: Sometimes Pandora.
7: Sometimes iTunes. I'll buy songs. <laughs> I don't know. I actually like that it's not physical. I feel like it saves time, energy, money.
5: Here's Moby. Our kids, our grandkids, will literally be baffled by the idea that at one point people owned music.
2: Here's Meryl Garbus.
7: Whether we like it or not, people want music instantaneously at their fingertips. I do. I want to turn on my RDO or, or Spotify or whatever. I want to say... I really need to hear Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar right now.
6: You and me, we should be dancing in the sheets.
7: And I can have that, you know. That is just the world that we live in.
2: Here's MTV founder Tom Freston, record producer Eddie Kramer, and Amy Mann.
3: The problem I have is
8: discovering good new music. There's just an overwhelming abundance of material
11: trying to figure out which technology. It became such a different experience on so many levels that I just stopped listening to music. It's only been lately that I've started again and kind of almost giving myself permission to jump back into stuff from the 70s that I never paid any attention to, like bread.
6: Hey.
4: format shift in the record industry, I mean, on average, is usually 15, 20 years. Everything's up in the air now. It, it, the next five to ten years will be
11: super interesting. But the power of music will always be massive.
2: It's
6: about the song. It's about the
3: art not the medium. Music transcends the technology, the format, whatever form you give it to me in. If the quality's good, um, if I can access what I want to hear, I'm a happy man.
2: Here's Phil Quartararo and Roger Waters.
3: What won't change is your relationship with music because sometime this year, you're going to hear a song that makes you want to cry.
2: And We human beings
5: have been trying to work out what it is about the mathematics of the arrangement of musical notes that elicits an emotional response in us. And it's still a mystery.
2: Here's composer Michael Tilson Thomas, RZA, and Daryl McDaniels.
5: Our lives are pretty much defined by what? I don't know, 20, 30 records? How many other years passes when you want to go back to your high school memory? A song could do it for you. There's always that piano, that verse, that voice, that beat, that cut, that scratch, that guitar riff
7: that's going to save your life.
2: Here's Annie
6: Lennox. I'm so grateful to all the musicians that made the music that I ever heard because it all went in and it's enriched my life. And in the end
2: George Martin. And we've seen now a hundred years
9: of recorded sound. And we've seen the effect of that sound on people.
0: And it has been quite remarkable. It's changed our lives.
2: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is our American Stories.
0: Great job, as always, Greg, and you were listening to George Martin, perhaps the greatest innovator in the studio. He was, of course, the fifth Beatle, the producer of the Beatles. Another great our american stories music segment one of my favorites and to hear more of what we do go to ouramericannetwork.org and we have the story of the song up there and so much more hours upon hours i would say probably over a hundred now just on songs and musical history the story of american music of innovation of formats and of course the songwriters and singers and musicians themselves The music no other country in the world produces like we do. This is Our American Stories.